0: I'm a, not a light sleeper but at 2:30 in the morning May 24, 2003, I woke up at 2:30 a.m. with a start and I had my my night clothing was covered with sweat. My heart was pounding through my chest. I had adrenalized electricity all throughout my body. I, I felt like a, a, a burglar had come into the house that was armed, and I was scared to death. So I got up, and I searched the house. I got around to the living room, and my wife, Hope, who's here with, with me this evening, uh, came and said, honey, what is wrong? And I said, I really, I really don't know. I just, I just am scared. Uh, I feel terrorized. And that night I began the seven, uh, seven month period, which up until then was the worst time in my whole life because I had a complete nervous breakdown. The first month of that time, I was in a fetal position on the couch I was horrified when the telephone rang I was afraid to check my email because I was afraid something would happen I was not thinking rationally I could not uh, get out of the house and drive without being afraid and it was a horrible experience and little did I know but I was having almost daily severe panic attacks. And this lasted for seven months and the day after Christmas it lifted. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background on this and then I'll go on with my story and share something I think will be of help. Uh, I was born with a genetic predisposition towards a generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, I can trace it through four generations on my mom's side of the family. Uh, my, my grandfather was a nervous wreck. My mother and her siblings uh, were highly, highly nervous and were on Valium uh, back in those days. And I can trace it through, through me uh, and on down. And uh, I also was raised in a home where I watched uh, my mother um, be anxious and fearful uh, and, uh, and up until I left home uh, my, after I graduated from high school to go to college uh, I lived in a home environment that was depressive and highly highly anxious well um, fast forward then to seven months after this May 24th incident in 2003 um i got on medications and and uh i uh, i'll tell you something about that about medications a little bit later i got on medications i went to see a, a christian therapist for uh a, a several years and i continued to seek the lord and after about 10 years i, I was okay for about 10 years then sure enough the third week of may uh, At the end of the school year at at the university where I teach uh, in 2013 I was walking to the parking lot to get in my car and boom it was like a bolt of electricity hit me and I said oh God not again and I had another five month nervous breakdown and I was scheduled to teach classes uh, in the fall. Uh, I taught a week and a half and I had to quit. I I was so afraid of teaching in a classroom and I'd been teaching for 35 years that I would get to my classroom an hour ahead of time when no one was in there and I'd just walk around and I'd sit up where I would teach just to, to try to feel safe inside the classroom, and it was too much. My grandchildren could not come and see me. I have five grandchildren. Uh, It was too much uh, stimulation. And so this lasted for about a five-month period of time. But after about two months of that, I believe the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I want you, I will help you, but I want you to take the research skills that I've given you and I want you to read everything you can on anxiety and depression. I want you to boil it, what you learn down, and I'll, I will guide you into a small handful of things that you will start practicing with my spirit's help. And when you have been become healed, I want you to share what you've learned with my people. And that was what gave rise to the book Finding Quiet, Which came out in May, and the response has been literally overwhelming. uh, Because I I discovered, uh, uh, among other things in the book, there are four fundamental practices that I'll uh, that I mention. I'm going to mention one uh, this evening that I think will help you. I don't have time for all four, but uh, what I learned transformed me as a human being. How do I know? Well, just after uh, after I had been doing this for just about a year or so, uh, the practices I learned, in August of 2015, for the next two and a quarter years, I had eight surgeries. I had three life-threatening cancers. I almost died during one of the surgeries. I had chemo, uh, that's why I have neuropathy in my feet uh, I had radiation I had a pacemaker put in I don't know which parts are mine and which aren't anymore you know but uh, and and um, I will tell you that I was utterly full of peace and happy through the whole time my wife and my married daughters would come to me and say what in the what is wrong with you <laughs> You're happy and you're peaceful. There's not, this isn't bothering you. And I'm saying, you know, it really isn't. I'm just doing, I'm doing really well. And it was because of the things that I had learned. And I say that to you to give you hope. Uh, and and um, I, I want now to get into some of the details of what I b- believe will be of help to you uh, if you struggle with anxiety or depression. Now, uh, before I get into the details, I want to say uh, two more big-picture things. And the first one is this. Anxiety has now passed depression as the single most uh, widespread mental disorder in the United States. This last year, this last 12 months, 20% of the American population from 18 older had a severe mental uh, anxiety disorder episode i'm not talking about people who get worried or nervous or they're just anxious about life i'm talking about people who had a severe uh episode that's that's one in five americans and from the ages of 18 on down it's overwhelming what's happening uh to our children up through high school so um, If you experience anxiety or depression, you're not alone. And if you don't, you know someone who does. And they need to be told they're not alone. And there needs to be an atmosphere created in our churches, and I know there is here, where we can open up and talk about this. And you can say, I am falling apart. I think I'm losing my mind. I'm filled with anxiety help me. You need to be able to say that to people without shame or guilt, because you're in a room here where there are at least 20% of you that are in trouble, (laughs) and the other 80% of you think you're not in trouble, and you're in trouble. So, So, and here's the second thing uh, that that I want to share before I get into details, and this is probably... The main thing I learned of all the research that I did and and, and here it is anxiety is largely not entirely but largely a learned habit that can be unlearned with the right practices anxiety is largely not entirely but largely a learned habit And the good news is you can unlearn it if you engage in the right practices so for the rest of our time here I'm going to give you some biblical context uh, before I get into a specific one of the four practices that I discovered that are in finding quiet and I want to just concentrate on one of them and then if we have time I don't know if we will uh, but we'll do some Q and A. I want to read. Uh, I want to begin by giving you some background understanding of something, and I'm going to read Romans six, uh, verses thirteen, uh, verses eleven through thirteen, and verse nineteen. Romans six, eleven to thirteen, and nineteen. Now these are these are absolutely bizarre verses. In fact, they don't seem to make any sense at all, and. Um, they're the kind of things you put to song because nobody knows what they're saying. And uh, you, feel, you feel better about yourself because you at least sang them. <laughs> Even if it didn't make any sense to you. Okay, so, so here's what Paul says. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its less. Where does sin reside? Does sin reside in your thought life? No does it reside in your emotions no does it reside in your will no not fundamentally where does sin fundamentally reside according to this text in your in your body that's huge and it says and don't go on presenting the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your members to God as instruments of shalom. Now the term is righteousness, but it means well-being. It means a sense of peace. It means not to have anxiety and fear and anger and depression any longer. So don't keep presenting the members of your body to to all manner of things, including fostering anxiety and depression, which I'm not saying are sinful. They may be, maybe they're not. Usually they're not. But I am saying they're not the way God wants us to flourish. Instead, present the members of your body to God as instruments of shalom, which is a deep sense of peace and well-being. It's what I had when I was facing death with three life-threatening cancers and all kinds of surgeries and and I had shalom. Uh, And I, I knew what it was like to be at peace and to have joy in the midst of that. Now, let me go on and he says, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's where I tie the idea of presenting your members as as instruments uh, of shalom that will result in you maturing and having the fruit of the Spirit without trying to have them. Now what does it mean to present your members to God as an instrument of shalom and well-being? instead of continuing to present your members to God as an instrument of being depressed and anxious all the time. What does that mean? Well, this is, cra- this is crazy if you don't understand what it means. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you four concepts. They'll, they'll be brief. And then I'm going to illustrate these concepts, and that, this text will come off the page to you, and we'll be, get a key for getting rid of anxiety and depression from this text. Here are the four concepts that you need to know. The first one is the notion of a habit. What is a habit? It is a tendency to act, feel, or think a certain way without choosing to do so. It's a tendency to act, feel, or think a certain way without choosing it. Just think, I have certain kinds of habits of writing the English letters when I write. And those habits reside right here. They're not in my hips and legs, they're in my left wrist and up in here I'm a lefty. And when I'm writing something, I'm thinking about what I'm trying to say. I'm not thinking about the way I write the English letters. Well, then why do the English letters end up being written the way they are? I see that hand, young lady. Habit, absolutely. It's because of habit. Now, what is character? Character is the sum total of your habits. So your bad habits are part of your bad character. Your good habits are part of your good character. Okay, two more concepts. Body, the Greek word soma. And what does what is the body? The body is the biological aspect of you that has organs and systems in it, like the circulation system. Um, so your body is this thing you see. It has a liver. It has a stomach. It has a heart muscle. Uh, it has lungs and a brain and so on. Now, what is flesh? This is the this is big. Called sarks, flesh is the habits that reside in your body that are contrary. To flourishing in the kingdom of God your ha- your flesh consists in the habits that reside in your body especially the members of your body that are contrary to being happy and flourishing and being living a life of, of well-being in the kingdom okay now um, what does this have to do with anything well let me illustrate it now what I'm about to say is not a joke it's gonna sound like it maybe but I mean it literally and so I hope you'll take me literally suppose that that I, I that we have a person who plays golf and their 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 hips and down to their to the way they position their feet are excellent, they're, they're, they're really good there, but their, their wrists and the way they swing their shoulders causes them to be lousy at golf. And they slice the ball and, and, and so on. So I would, what I would do would be to say to that person, I want you to present your wrists and your shoulders to a golf instructor As instruments of golf righteousness in order to get rid of your golf flesh now what am I saying I'm saying that you have golf flesh what would golf flesh be it would be habits that reside in specific members of your body that are hurting you at getting good at golf does that make sense Now, if I said to present those members to a golf instructor as instruments of golf righteousness, meaning as instruments that that would make those members good at playing golf instead of bad at it, what would I mean, would I say, go up to the golf instructor and get on your knees and say, here's my body, use it, speak through it, swing through it, it's yours. Um, or, or, or what? I um, hear some teaching about golf and then get a CD about playing golf that gets me pumped up as I drive in my car and I get, get real psyched about golf and I read about it? Well, that would be all right. But, but to present my members to a golf instructor, here's what I would do. I would go to him and let him watch my swing and he'd say, Your bad habits reside here and here. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go to a driving range and 200 times a day for the next three months, I want you to swing a golf club like this instead of the way you're swinging it, and I will check in with you to make sure you're doing it right. Now, why would you do that? Answer, you are trying to disengroove the bad muscle memory or the bad habits that reside in those parts of your body and replace them with new grooves, new habits, new tendencies to swing in a way that will make you good at golf without you having to think about it. Now, why would you present these members instead of your hips and legs and so on? Because this is where the golf flesh resides. Now, that is exactly what Paul is saying in this text. For example, if you have anger problems, one way to deal with that is to start presenting your stomach to God by fasting every week. And there's a way to learn how to fast. And the reason you do that is because if you can teach yourself to be deprived right here of something that you want, then that will get a beach hold in you and you will learn to be deprived of recognition. You'll learn to be deprived and not getting your way without getting angry because you established a beachhead by presenting your stomach to God as an instrument of righteousness by retraining it through fasting. Because So you won't, you don't live by it. Now, when it comes to anxiety, there are two organs that you, two members of your body that you have to learn to present to God as instruments of well-being. And they're your brain and your heart muscle, your heart muscle. I can't talk about the heart muscle. We don't have time for that. I'm going to zero in on one of three exercises for your brain. And these are training exercises. Now, you know what's interesting about what what the Bible says here about presenting your brain to God as an instrument of righteousness. What we have learned in neuroscience is that your brain grooves can actually be changed by thinking differently. So if you have a brain that's trained to get up in the morning and be anxious and worry and to be afraid or to be blue and to say not another day or to see the glass half empty instead of half full, that is because there are habits of that kind of triggering that reside in your brain and heart muscle. And there are ways that you can present your brain and your heart muscle to God as an instrument of shalom to get rid of the anxiety-producing triggers and replace them uh, with healthy um, triggers where your brain automatically triggers peaceful and joyful and safe thoughts and feelings. Now I'm gonna give you one one practice here uh, that I, I want to make sure I give you at least something here that you can take away the main thing I've tried to say so far is that anxiety is not entirely sometimes we're born with a predisposition and I think medications and therapy are very important what I'm telling you is not a substitute for those but supplement if you don't think that medication is for Christians, I, I'd like to ask you, if you do get finding quiet, just give me a hearing. That's all I can ask. Just give me a chance to persuade you otherwise. And if you don't agree with me, well, I don't agree with myself half the time, so that's okay. We're on the same page at least part of the time there. So, All right, now I want I want to give you a a... a training exercise called a four-step solution. And this was discovered by a Christian um, psychiatrist who teaches at UCLA, and it's very, very biblically based, though you're not going to find this in Scripture. Now, what this is designed to do is to retrain your brain in the way that you engage in self-talk. Self-talk. A lot of anxiety and depression, believe it or not, is due to the way we engage in self-talk. And, and we talk to ourselves all day long, but it becomes so habitual we're not aware of doing it. And then it's 1.30 in the afternoon and we're feeling horrible. I think, where did that come from? Well, you've been beating up on yourself all day and, <clears throat> and um, engaging in what all thought distortions. Uh, which we all do. And so there's a way to to change that because those ways of self-talk, which produce anxiety and depression, are habits that are ingrained in your brain grooves and they have formed ruts and they automatically trigger without you choosing to trigger them. And you need to re- re- disengroove those ruts and replace them with healthy grooves. That is, get rid of a bad habit of getting up in the morning and the first thing you do is tell yourself what a horrible day it's going to be and how scared you are. And start having a different way of automatically, without trying, have a different trigger that's peaceful and joyful. Here, this is There are four steps to this. Step one... Is called relabel now here is where um, you get up in the morning and you pray Uh, I do this every morning and I have done this every morning for probably five years Um, you get up and you pray uh, Psalm 139 23 to 24 and basically you say this Lord, please search me. Search me. Search my body from head to toe. Search my mind, my emotions, and know me. Would you examine me and see if there is something inside of me that's hurting me and bringing me pain? And would you lead me in a way of shalom and well-being? All right, now the reason you do that is because what you have to do is start practicing noticing your self-talk. No more letting it fly under the radar and running your life. You've got to start recognizing it. So you invite the Lord to help you do that. Now, suppose that you get a brain message that, that that, that says to you, you are such a loser. The meeting at lunch yesterday you made a fool out of yourself and everybody saw it at the office and when you go in there today they're all gonna be looking at you because you're nothing but a loser. Now that you say that to yourself and you don't even know you did it okay so what you want to do is start paying attention to that and when that happens you say to it this you are nothing but a habit in my brain you're just a brain message you have nothing to do with reality you have nothing to do with whether I made a fool of myself or not or whether people are going to look at me funny when they go in the office you're just a bad habit that's all you are and you're a groove in my brain so you the first thing you do is that you relabel it <clears throat> you call it nothing but a, but a triggered brain habit that's got nothing to do with reality okay step two you relabel it now I, I, I can't go into this, but uh, on on page uh, 74 and 75 of Finding Quiet, there are 10 thought distorters that most people engage in, and they ruin our lives. Now, let me tell you my favorite one. This is the one I'm really good at, unless I work on it, and this is called um, magnification or catastrophizing. I learned it from my mom. That's when I spend all my day long going, oh, what if, what if, what if, oh, you mockers, don't you be mocking me. <laughs> all right. What if, anybody, <laughs> do I have any what ifers out there? Oh, yeah. Uh, you go, what if, and then you go, oh, God, that happens. Oh, that's horrible. Nothing's going to work out. And then you know what I do? I spend all my time trying to figure out how I'm gonna make everything okay if that happens. And then I'll say, okay, I, th- I, think, I think I've got it, I, th- I think I've got that covered. Well, then what happens? Another what if jumps in there. And I spent, this is the Lord Jesus knows this. I spent, oh, 60 years of my life living in the future. And I missed my life. So what I've done is I've got two or three of my favorites in this list of ten. And what you do is you find the one or two that are your major uh, thought distorters. And you relabel this self-talk. First thing you do is you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what you are. You're a bad habit. And that's it. You're just a brain habit. you got nothing to do with reality. And I even have a name for you. You're catastrophizing. Now, why do you do that? In 2007, uh, 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 a psychologist uh, uh, at, uh, I believe it was an Ivy League school, discovered that if a person can simply come up with a name... Either for the pain they're feeling or for a frightening thought they've got, it alleviates a good bit of the anxiety and fear just by naming it. And do you know that if you practice this for a period of about two months, your amygdala, which is the center of the brain that triggers anxiety and fear, actually on a brain scan, shrinks. So you lose a fear-oriented brain because you're disengrooving those triggers to be afraid and replacing them with triggers that go, gosh, this is a great day. Now, the third, so the first step is that you, 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 you you relabel it, you reframe it, you name it for what it is, that gives you power over it, makes it less, and it doesn't make it seem as real. Third step is the key, and you refocus. And by refocus, I mean that instead of getting down in the mud with this thought, and this is what I was doing that was killing me. And I was trying, because I'm a smart guy, and I was trying to outreason reason it. And I was overthinking it. And I was trying to say, well, these are all the reasons why I shouldn't be thinking about you and I shouldn't be afraid of you. Of course, what that was doing was digging my brain ruts deeper and making the habit stronger so that it was even harder to get rid of it. Does that you see what I'm trying to say about that? What I needed to do was to forget about it. Well, how do you do that? Refocus. You move to something that will get you into what is called flow. And flow is when you are caught up into something such that you lose track of time. You just get lost in it. And so after, after you've relabeled and reframed it and you've, you've got it, you say, I'm begging you, you got nothing to do with reality, you're just catastrophizing, it's a bad habit. And then you go. You do something. It could be reading a novel. It could be uh, watching a TV show. It could be checking the web. It could be checking your email. Um, it could, doesn't have to be something spiritual. It could be that. It, it, it depends on what works for you. What you have to do is to find something that's ready at hand for you. Radio worship. I don't know what it is. You find your own thing. But it's got to be something that you can get to, that that you can get your attention focused on. That maybe playing solitaire, it doesn't matter. And then um, when I first was practicing this, it would take me about twenty or twenty-five minutes uh, before I could go back to the thought, and it was no longer powerful, and I could do the fourth step, and that's reevaluate how I did. Now, it doesn't take but a minute or two, because I've I've learned how to do it. And so these are ways, this is one of the practices in the book that helps you regroove your brains by presenting your brain to God as an instrument of shalom and not an instrument of anxiety and depression, by retraining the bad habits to get rid of it and, and replacing them with triggers in the brain that automatically trigger habitually, Peace and joy and things like that and and you do it by attacking the self-talk that you're that you and I have not been aware of and you you relabel it you, uh, you reframe it you refocus you can you can ask my wife she will ask me and she's been doing this now for probably three years or so what do you have going this week and I'll say I don't have a clue I don't know what I'm doing this week uh, now, and, and when's your, when, is your, when is your next trip out of town? I, mean, I don't know. Uh, now, what I, you do have to plan, so Sunday I do plan to make sure I got my week lined up, so if I have to do something Monday, I'll get it done. But then I forget about it. I'm living in the present now. But now here's the key, folks, when you're learning to form a new habit, whether it's tennis or playing the piano, You're gonna, number one, be lousy at it for a long time. It's not gonna do you a darn bit of good. And you're gonna wanna throw in the towel. But if you stick with it, guess what'll happen? You will develop piano character. That's the ability to play the piano without thinking about it, and so on. So what I wanna say to you is that the single most important message for this evening is that anxiety is largely a learned habit not entirely but that can be unlearned by engaging in the right practices and one of them is dealing with negative self-talk that takes us under and the four-step solution is a practice that you can do to present your brain to God as an instrument of righteousness. you It will not help you. Well, there's one lady on Amazon that said it helped her the next day. I, I think she's lying. But, um, <laughs> but it, it's going to take you... Um, uh, I think it's, it takes time because you're forming a new... And it, so, don't worry. It's going but it'll take you somewhere between 22 days and maybe four months. And if you stick with these habits every day, which I do them every day, and some of them I do more than once, it will change your fl- anxiety, depressive flesh, and replace it with shalom and. A sense of well-being and peace how do you take every thought captive to Christ this is how you do it you form new habits by going to the gym and retrain, not literally by retraining your brain to form new habits instead of bad ones it will take time but you can do it and overcome your anxiety and depression to a significant degree. In addition to counseling and perhaps medication as well. Let's pray, thank you.